This episode of AVXL was recorded on March 18th, 2021. We've got TV updates from Samsung, LG, Sony, and TCL. Well, kind of for TCL. Sonos announces a spendy Bluetooth speaker. That CD ripping app you asked about, subwoofer AVR fails, and some love for Star Trek. And please don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. So I've been unpacking, as you know, uh, setting things up, exploring things. I am on a deep dive on just how frustrating active noise-canceling headphones can be. Because I, I, I decided, like, sure, sure, S-H-U-R-E makes the Ionic 50. Technically, they announced it last year, but they were hammering on them at CES. And I'm like, you know, I, I tracked down a pair to try out. We'll talk about it next week. Okay. As somebody who has a relationship going back 30 plus years with Sure Microphones, I've used them professionally uh, in studios. I, I, I have a huge respect for their earbuds. They've made some very, very nice headphones. I will talk next week. Understood. I don't know what to say. It was a weird experience. Also, uh, as I was unpacking, one of the things I, I came across was an audiophile magazine. Aw. And it was open to an article about something interesting. And the ad across from the article was talking about reference power cables. <laughs> it's copper. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> cost more than the tires on my truck. And they're big tires for a big truck. You know, on the upside, only fancy speaker cables cost more than my truck. Uh, I'm just going to just just say no. Agreed. You don't need an eight hundred dollar power cable, or twelve hundred dollars, or three thousand dollars, whatever insane. If they say they have pure silver in your power cable, you need another hobby. I'm just gonna say that. I'm saying it with love. I'm I'm saying that's that's a you can you can do some crazy stuff in twenty four hours in Vegas with that money, or a week in Manhattan, and the memories will last you a lifetime. Uh. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you love your $17,000 pure silver Bavarian moonlight hammered speaker cables, enjoy. I'm happy for you. Truly. If you have everything else <laughs> taken care of, you know, then go ahead for the <laughs> the super silver cables if you really need to. You don't. Yeah, exactly. We talked about speaker cables last week, and we'll we'll recap later today. But okay. Oh my goodness! I just I just saw that, and I was just like, <laughs> fun old ads in a print magazine, no less. Yeah, I still buy magazines because magazines are important to me. <laughs> I try to maintain a subscription to at least one. I miss writing for magazines. Something else I'm going to miss, although prize has effectively been dead. We're on life support for a couple of years now. After 36 years, something that has deeply touched Robert and Patrick's lives is gone. This is true. <laughs> that unique, that very unique retail experience of visiting a Fry's Electronics. I just remember that each store had its own unique setup or unique 
gimmick in a sense of something really special yeah. that you could go inside. And I, I believe the one we had near us had a gigantic Tesla coil that made the most incredible oh, racket, right. like every 10 minutes when they'd fire that thing off. And that was always oh, kind of cool. Goodness. But just that ability to go into a superstore like that and pick up all the parts you need for any electronics project. That was the highlight of my experiences there. And yeah, like you mentioned, the last couple of years has really been a pairing back of that to the point where finally last month, yeah, they pulled the plug after 36 years. We should point out this is not a lamentation of, a, of another retail big box store. Um, I mean, it is, but we should point out Fry's was a complicated and very strange place, right? Started out, like, I think the family ran a grocery store chain, sold it, and started a new chain and ended up doing three really peculiar things is they started dealing with electronics and then they started, essentially it evolved into, especially in the Palo Alto store, which had a Western theme, not to be confused with the science fiction horror movie set theme out by the place Robert's talking about, uh, or the Aztec theme, which was down in LA. Each store had, like Robert said, had a weird ass theme. Yeah, that's the other one I remember visiting. <laughs> But you could literally, like, I first read about it in microsurfs, and, and when I was about to move out to California to, to help launch DDTV, which became Tech TV, somebody's like, oh, you got to go to Fry's while you're out here. And uh, are you even, maybe it was even a year or two before that, I was out in San Francisco for business, and I went to a Fry's, and it's like, they had half of the flute catalog uh, for meters. They had you know, all of the televisions, computers, computer parts, EEPROM programmers, you know, 17 different types of solder in stock, you know, eight vertical feet by like, you know, entire vertical rack of, of inventory on soldering irons. I mean, it was nuts. And as you got to the front, there would be sort of magazine CDs, DVDs, later on Blu-rays, probably it was probably still VHS when I got there and DVDs were just creeping in. Uh, and then there would be this sort of collection of geek friendly snacks. And like I first read about <laughs> it in microsurfs in like 95 and, and got out there to see it a couple years later, but it was insane. It was this really tied into kind of the, the Silicon Valley mystique that, you know, you're you're an engineer and you need to program an e-promer and you're going to get two bags of chips. And, oh, you know, is that the new CD from whoever? Uh, it was a really surreal place because they also sold appliances and, you know, we mentioned electronics, speakers. It was this amazing, insane experience. And a couple of years ago, one of the rumors is that they weren't paying a couple of their major vendors in a, a timely fashion. Uh-oh. The name that comes up is usually Samsung. You know, they sold a lot of Samsung TVs, a lot of other TVs. But what we know is that they tried to flip from a they buy the inventory and carry the cost of the inventory model to a we're going to carry consignments, which, you know, Walmart started doing decades ago. And to some degree, I think Best Buy started doing decades ago and Amazon pretty much started doing. And it was just too late and their reputation kind of sucked. <laughs> so for the last couple of years, you would walk in there, they might have some TVs, but most of the rest of the store, and we're talking a Walmart size store, six, seven, eight thousand square feet, massive Right. Probably much bigger than that, right? But huge, huge, huge stores. And there'd be like a box every six inches on a, you know, 20 yard row of shelving. You know, and then they started sort of like repositioning. It was kind of heartbreaking. There's a couple of DIY episodes for System or Die Try and I did that were deeply interrelated to that store existing or being open until like 930 on a Sunday night. The writing was on the wall, so to speak. 
Yeah. Over the last few years of that company's existence, it really, you know, you could see where it was heading and it wasn't looking yeah. good, but yeah. They also, I mean, they had a, a senior executive uh, s- steal like $60 million. <laughs> so that didn't help or some insane amount of money embezzled. Um, you know, I, I will say, uh, you know, Best Buy going really great. We have Micro Center. We have a Micro Center here in St. Louis. It's a fantastic shopping experience. Not so much for audio. Uh, you know, audio or, or home theater gear, but most of what's left seems pretty stable at this point, having been in Best Buy several times. True. I have a beloved shop here called Central Computers, and I go there as often as possible because it gave me some of that Fry's experience in terms of, oh, here's a whole rack of computer cases that you can actually put hands on and go through. Oh, here's all the separate parts specifically for PC building and things like that. That's what's still yeah. one of my favorite shops, although during the times of COVID, it's all sort of <laughs> by appointment only. <laughs> you know, I can I can understand that. I can understand that. I don't know. And, you know, you still, if you want to see an insane, it's for me at this point, if I want to see a whole bunch of televisions, it's still just to get a, a brief look at them with horrendously distracting content it's still pretty much at this point best buy or uh, costco man costco has a lot of tvs they sure do right at that front door another musical medium the inventor of a musical medium we associate with our childhood but which actually has been on a research uh in the last few years the cassette tape you had a note up here about lou ottens yes he was the uh the dutch inventor of the cassette tape and according to Phillips, he has passed away at the age of 94. They mentioned a couple of interesting things in this article about him and his life. When he was developing the form factor for the cassette tape in the early 60s, he actually had a wooden block that he carried around in his coat pocket, and it was just the right size of being portable enough yet large enough to contain the audio that he wanted to record. And the company was always hoping to be able to put that wooden block in their own personal museum at Phillips Electronics. But it turns out that one time he was replacing a flat tire on his vehicle and he used that piece of wood to help prop something up and then he left it on the side of the road. So (laughs) it was, I, I mean, the cassette tape, especially if you are of age, it was probably a primary means for you to buy and listen to music and record your own for that matter. And just knowing that it all kind of started with a prototype wooden block that eventually, <laughs> eventually is now lost to time. <laughs> That's a really practical way to design something though. Heck yeah. I mean, back before people lived in t-shirts and tight pants. <laughs> Mr. Lou Ottens later on went to help co-develop the compact disc as well. And, you know, being Philips Electronics, they were one of the uh, primary movers and shakers for the CD format that we all eventually partook in and still do to some degree. Although try finding a modern computer case that you really like that actually has an optical bay drive in it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Got one right here to my left. Those are those are turning into unicorns, but in uh, memory of Mr. Lou Ottens and Fry's Electronics. Frightening. I also I've been amused in the last year or two to see all of these different cassette tapes showing up. Uh, There was a a whole label dedicated to them and uh, or or at least it was mostly about cassette reissues in Southern California and uh, they've been showing up on Bandcamp and other places. And it's just the most surreal thing. Be like, ah, oh, I thought I was done with you. 
Before I ever owned a disk drive or a hard drive of any kind, I was using tape drives that used standard cassette tapes in for modern computer or for personal computers way back in the day. Total nightmare, but in terms of speed and quality and <laughs> consistency, but it worked at the time and it was a cheap way to store, you know, data in addition to, of course, music and audio. I love me some cassette tapes. Not as much as I love me CDs, or better yet, yes. lossless audio files. It's all about the digital audio files nowadays. Yes. Yes, it is. New TVs arriving in the hands of reviewers and retailers. Uh, you had some picks from Samsung, LG, and Sony. Yeah. If you're awaiting the 2021 lineup, I'm seeing the QN900 and QN800 8K screens from Samsung, part of their Neo QLED lineup. Those are appearing in stores and in reviews online, and people seem to be pretty thrilled overall with that, especially with some of the latest software updates that Samsung had pushed to those specific models. Also, for 4K screens, they have the QN90 and the QN85 also popping up at more affordable pricing compared to their flagship 8K models. I have been patiently waiting for LG to throw down on their G1 and C1 series of OLED televisions, I am now seeing at least reviewers online posting some G1 and C1 reviews. I also learned that the G series, LG's gallery series OLED TV, which is really made to be hung flat against the wall. It comes with a special bracket right in the box, made to be wall mounted. But with a $100 option, you can actually add feet or legs to LG G series TV as well. So if you absolutely have to put that beautiful TV on a stand or on a large table anyway, there is a $100 option for some feet. So it is truly not just a wall mount design only, as I have often implied. But it does cost you an extra <laughs> 100 bucks to do that. Also, uh, the good folks over at Sony have their Master Series OLED televisions dropping left and right. I saw the good folks over at Value Electronics open their store to let a few reviewers take a look at the A90J, which is that 1300 plus nit beauty of an OLED, at least when it's in its vivid mode. I really curious. I need to look up some numbers as to what a good calibrated light output performance of it is. However, it just seems like that number literally almost doubling the light output compared to last year's general OLED scene is a pretty significant bump up and it should be very noticeable no matter what content you'll be looking at. And just in case if I have ever implied that the 2021 4K TCL 6 Series TVs were new, they are not. Uh -oh. It was a carryover <laughs> from the summer 2020 launch. <laughs> and these are the, the currently available 4K Quantum Dot up to 240 local dimming zones of mini LED goodness. Those TVs also feature Dolby Vision HDR10 support. However, there will be an 8 series refresh in the near future, and that will feature the company's new gapless mini LED backlighting tech. And there is an 8K 6 series in the works. That will be a brand new 6 series TV, although we'll see exactly what it means to bring 8K to the masses, so to speak. And then there's also the 7 series and the XL TVs that TCL has talked about, but we still don't have a lot of information other than, you know, it's a 7 series and it's going to be probably a little bit better than the 6 series. And the XL TVs, of course, are representative of their larger format screen sizes going up to, I believe, 85 inches. Is this a hold on... TCL six series TVs or until we see what's going on with the, the, you know, the seven series and, and the eight K six series, or are you still comfortable recommending? 
I think it's going to be the same great value. Uh, effectively, okay. because they launched the current 6 Series, I believe it was August of 2020, it's almost like it was so close to the end of the year that, okay, that one's going to carry over. However, what I took exception with was that if you look up a 2021 6 Series 4K television, it's actually listed as a 2021 model, and uh, you would think that would imply it's something different from what launched back in the summer of 2020, but it's not. It's like literally Got they it. just are changing the model year on it on paper, and that's it. However, like I mentioned, the 8 Series, the new 8K 6 Series, and the 7 Series, and the XL TVs have yet to show up in any reasonable numbers that I've seen so far, and we're keeping an eye out for those. But we are definitely in that sort of that that shifty stage of the television process cycle where the very newest TVs are just showing up, but we don't know their quality compared to last year's TVs. Last year's TVs are probably drying up in the marketplace. The prices on the older TVs will suddenly be going up after months and months of going down, and the new TVs will be at their highest points. It's not a bad time, I think, to wait, if you can, before buying a new television. 100% agree. That's my take on okay. it right now. Granted, what Samsung, LG, and Sony have out right now are their best of 2021, and that is tempting as can be, and I understand that. But, yep, you're right. It's going to be full prices for a while, at least a month. Give it a few weeks if, you really, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking to save a little money on the latest and greatest. On the upside, not a whole lot has changed in the 4K projector market, unless I've missed a review or two. So, you know, if you're thinking about buying a JVC or Sony or... Epson, you're probably good to go for a 4K projector. 1080p projectors, don't ask. <laughs> that LG dual laser 810 projector that is out right now, it's about $3,000, is getting terrific reviews, and I'm very curious to see that in person. That is going to compete directly with something like the Epson 5050, and right. it's right in that same price point, but with a laser-based system. And that dual laser capability gives it better color coverage than it would have otherwise compared to most lamp-based systems. Interesting. Don't tell me it's better than the projector I have. That's all I'm asking. Just not today. You have a fantastic <laughs> projector. For now. I was actually marveling. Uh, I finally got the, the 4K Blu-rays of The Lord of the Rings and... Uh, I won't mention hobbits because Robert flinches every time I say the word hobbit. He's on Skype. I'll say hobbit <laughs> one more time. So actually, the flinch is kind of adorable. Um, I was actually marveling at uh, how good that looks. And it's also, uh, compared to the last time I watched it, uh, one, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a new 4K UHD transfer. The transfer is significantly improved on the 4K version. Um, but also the blacks on this projector are so much better. And, you know. Contrast is king. It's interesting to watch certain scenes and be like, whoa. You know, when you're watching the ring wraiths, it's amazing to have dark black levels. So it wasn't headphones. Sonos announced Rome, a $169 Bluetooth slash Wi-Fi portable. Well, it's a Bluetooth speaker from Sonos, right? Looks like it will be shipping in. Oh, it looks like it's. Is it shipping in June now? <laughs> Just a couple days ago, it was shipping in April. Maybe they've sold out. Hold on one moment while I check this live. Okay, May 7th, 2021. Uh, if you want the wireless key charger, it's later this year. So let me run you through this. It's Sonos has been adding new products. They added sort of a Wi-Fi-based 
device to carry around your house. This is an actual, you know, the, the big teaser for this showed somebody in a pastoral environment with a big backpack. And then when they announced the product, the backpack had a Sonos Roam strapped to it, right? 10 hours of battery life. It's IP67 waterproof. And if you're wondering what that means, IP ratings, the first number talks about dust. and The second number talks about waterproofing. Oh. Uh, six means totally protected against dust. And seven uh, is temporary, i.e. 30 minutes immersion between 15 centimeters and one meter. So, you know, you can screw around with it next to the pool or in a rainstorm and not really worry about it. It runs the Sonos app on Wi-Fi. It's got AirPlay 2 support, and then it does Bluetooth streaming when you're out and about. Uh, it has Alexa and Google Assistant support built in, and it's built like a Sonos device. There's a really slick little video that they sort of unpack it, except that there are play, pause, volume, skip, replay, mic off, uh, you know, and Bluetooth buttons on there. So it's it's got a lot more buttons than we've seen on a Sonos device in a long time, which I am actually taking as a positive and good thing. They also are talking about automatic true play tuning. So if you haven't set up Sonos in your house, if you have an iPhone, you can essentially launch the Sonos app and you you wander around moving the phone up and down. Uh, and they use the iPhones because there are 32,000 Android devices with 32,000 uh, you know different speakers or microphones, or I should say microphones in this case. Right. There is a vastly smaller set of microphones for them to validate and some fairly high consistency on those microphones for them to validate so they can use the microphone. They know the microphone basically that's in your phone and then they your iPhone, I should say, and then they use that to adjust uh the psychoacoustics to adjust essentially the you know the, the bass or the treble output on the device and you know it can make a, a you know a subtle change and it can make a huge change depending on the sono speaker you have where it is in the room and, and what kind of room you're in it's a good thing um, so they're talking about automatic true play tuning on the road that quote smartly adapts to your surroundings and whatever you're listening to for sound that's astonishingly detailed and perfectly balanced, which I guess means if you're maybe in a small room, it cuts it back in a big room, it opens up the bass. I'm kind of really curious because there's this picture when they're talking about automatic true play tuning, there's a picture next to it of somebody on like, you know, lounging on a hill or a mountainside, kind of casually holding the roam up against 1D, presumably looking out in the majestic view in the distance. I'm really curious kind of what the psychoacoustics on this are going to be and, and what it's going to sound like in different areas uh, if it's automatically changing. I mentioned earlier, uh, it does wireless charging or it charges on any key certified charger. It's got a USB-C port built in. Um, so the whole thing is triangle shaped, so it doesn't roll down the hill, which I think is a big plus, or roll off your table. It's a, you know, six, eight, ten inch long triangular device. If you want the matching triangle shaped key charger, the whole thing uh, costs $218 and you'll have to wait a little longer for it. It's in pre-order now. Uh, I feel like I should double check the specs because I noted a number of different possible lengths for the device. Hey. And under dimensions, we have 6.61 by 2.44 by 2.36 inches. It's essentially, it's a long extruded triangle with rounded edges, but it's six inches long, not a foot long, which might be a little ridiculous to a lot of you out there. I think it might make for a good sound bar for smaller TVs too. Or if you're just looking for a small upgrade for a small TV, that in <laughs> addition just to being a portable Bluetooth speaker, it's something to maybe consider, especially having that automatic true play tuning built in, where if it no longer requires a phone to activate that feature, that's kind of right. interesting. It's kind of cool that they've actually built that in. And I am 
really curious to actually hear how that would compare on and off yeah. and, and in addition to running true play on something like a ios device separately it's got a microphone array in it far field microphone array basically it's got a bunch of microphones in it that allow it to listen to the echoes uses advanced beamforming and multi-channel echo cancellation uh, to enable quick voice assistant activation and automatic true play tuning so essentially it has a bunch of microphone and it listens to the different microphones compares what it hears um, to give you a better experience. It's got a tweeter, a midwoofer, and two Class H digital amplifiers. And you just don't run into Class H listed a lot. Usually you hear a lot of Class AB, you hear a lot of Class D. Class D is not digital. Well, we'll talk about that another day. But Class H is essentially a, a modified AB design, and we usually associate AB amplifiers traditionally. I like a lot of Class D amplifiers. Uh, Class AB is traditionally a sort of a, the power amplifiers of audiophiles. Class H is a tweaked Class AB design for performance. I just thought it was really interesting that they didn't use a, a Class D amplifier in this because I'm a nerd. Um. Understood. <laughs> I'm also really curious to hear what the bass response sounds like on this because it is not a big device, but they do some really interesting stuff with psychoacoustics at uh, Sonos. I picture a warm sound, or I predict a warm sound from this particular <laughs> Rome product. I think you're probably pretty safe on that one. I have been waiting with bated breath today. March 18th, the day we record this, the Snyder Cut of Justice League is here on HBO Max. By the way, because I'm slow, I literally just figured out HBO Max is HBO plus Cinemax. I, just, that's, I was like, I just, duh. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about that on the last episode, and I'm still oh, smiling about it. I thought we it. cut it out. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I left it in. I thought we cut it from last episode. Um, in any case, I'm still crawling through season two of The Nick, which is a Cinemax thing. If you're in Canada, Justice League is on Crave. You'll be renting it in the rest of the world if you're not in the United States or Canada, as far as I know. This is supposed to be a radically different movie. Haven't seen it yet. I wait with bated breath. I'm just going to leave it at that. Excellent. Word is that Netflix is cracking down on password sharing. Uh, the streamable, that was, which was the, the first article I read on this, uh, quote, Netflix begins test to crack down on password sharing outside your household. There's a lot of other sites covering this now. A few days ago, Netflix subscribers started seeing... They go to launch Netflix on a TV, and it says, quote, if you don't live with the owner of this account, you need your own account to keep watching. Uh-oh. They want you to verify the account with an email or a text code, or you can create a new account with a 30-day free trial. Essentially, household is, is not being defined as you and your children in college and your grandmother and whoever else, but essentially that uh, household being everybody in the physical location or at the IP address, I would imagine, of the primary account. A lot of the general writing around this is like, you know, money's getting tight. Not that, you know, as we discussed last week, you know, Netflix made a metric ton of money, but I think Netflix is looking to continue to make money and to get people to dial back on the password sharing. So sometimes you just forget who you've shared what with or where. And <laughs> it's nice when services offer a page, usually on a website where you can look at all devices right. that are currently connected to that account and either do a, a just a flush. It's like, hey, you know what? Log me out of everything and let me start over. 
with the couple of devices I actually have. It doesn't sound like, well, unless they go to this IP-based constraint of account users within a quote-unquote household, it doesn't sound like they're totally going to eliminate the need if you have, say, a plan that allows for up to four or five simultaneous streams to limit that other than, you know, verify it. (laughs) Verify that is the intention, either through an email code, a text code, or do it later. <laughs> it's it's interesting because uh, one of the things they quote in the streamable article is is uh, uh, an article about a study that I want to say uh, Majid Research or Majid, I can never say that name properly. They did some research and they were estimating that 35% of millennials were sharing passwords for streaming services, uh, 19% of Gen X and 13% of baby boomers. So uh, as that was three years ago so maybe enough uh millennials have aged up to the point where they're they want them off their parents account uh, or their parents off their account as the case may be that could be a some pretty big numbers on the bottom line depending on uh how that works out for them so we were talking about speaker wire last week uh my answer to bill's question in case uh we or me wandered a little long in distance because there was science there and there was, you know, it's, let me, let me, Rob and I personally almost always use 12 gauge copper from a reputable source. In my case, it almost always comes from Monoprice. Um, 12 gauge wire is incredibly low resistance. Um, It's going to run just about any eight or four ohm speaker load out to 60 feet. One of the challenges with speaker wires, technically like 16 gauge wire should be good for an 8 ohm speaker out to 50 feet. However, uh, you know, there are some challenges in that a lot of quote 8 ohm speakers are probably really more like 6 ohm speakers and, and in certain frequencies maybe as low as 4 ohms or worse. You may also update speakers in the future, in which case it would suck to pull a bunch of cable through your house or through some crazy, you know. In my case, uh, I knew I was, I had a fairly simple run from a media closet into the crawl space across the house through the wall, into the back of the, the the speaker deployment area for my home theater, and I wanted to run the wire once and not have to think about it. For me, 12-gauge, you know, copper wire from Monoprice pretty much, uh, pretty much answers that. If you are wiring a house and you anticipate longer runs, uh, for example, you have a 5,000-square-foot house or, you know, multiple levels, and you plan on having everything, you know, like a multi-room audio system run out of one closet, things get more complicated, which is what your installer is supposed to sort out for you. I think that 12 gauge recommendation though, for most people, yeah, there's rarely a reason to go thicker than that or a heavier gauge unless there's specific reasons to, but like you said, for most four ohm or eight ohm speakers out to say 60 feet, that's a perfect and affordable way to do it. Speaker cable from your source through your DAC to your amplifier or from your source to your amplifier to your speakers, your speakers are going to make the hugest difference. Where they are in the room and kind of how the room is set up is going to be make the next biggest difference. Your source material is probably going to make as big a difference as your speakers if you have crappy source material like you're, you know, you're listening to the cheap, uh, highly compressed version of audio that's, that's, that's not doing you any favors. I know reputable, experienced audio audio writers who can hear a difference between some speaker cables. But generally speaking, I I think there was a a great wire uh, cutter article that uh, 
Jeff Morrison and Brent Butterworth did several years ago. Their general consensus was, could they hear differences? Yeah, but they were incredibly subtle. But mostly it was that, generally speaking, like 12-gauge wire, they picked more 12-gauge wire over 14-gauge wire or something like that in a, in a kind of an A-B test. But I, I bring this up as like, yes, can some people hear a difference? Yeah. Is it incredibly subtle? Yeah. Is it going to change your life? No. A lot of monoprice speaker wire in our lives. If you want to get fancier, uh, we talk about a lot, Blue Jeans Cable. Uh, they sell Belden and, and Canare, which uh, when you hear those names, think about wiring professional audio or video studios. And they do some really slick, really smart, ultrasonically welded terminations. So the speaker cable and the spade lug essentially become one ultrasonically welded thing. Nice. Yeah. Ultrasonic welding is kind of the standard in automobile wiring harnesses to give you an idea of how tough this is. Uh, and it should hold up quite nicely in your home. And if you want to change, uh, you know, terminations, like you can't use spade lugs on your new speakers and you need banana plugs, you're going to be cutting those off and, and attaching new uh, terminations on them. 12 gauge copper, reputable source. You know, if you want to spend $25,000 on speaker cable, enjoy. Uh, we're just... Yeah. If you didn't hear that, that was Rob snorting. You can do a proper <laughs> job with 12 gauge in just about every application for especially yeah. for a single room or even a remodel of a house to relatively reasonable sizes. Yeah. I've also heard people talking about, well, you need a particular what well, you know, let us let us wait for responses on askanavxl.com and we shall move on from there. We got a question from David who posted on patreon.com slash AVXL. Give me the name of the app discussed to scan your CD rips. I think it was Spool or maybe Spoon. I can't write these down while driving. Well, thank you, David, uh, on behalf of everyone on your commute for keeping your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. So dbpoweramp.com. DB Power App is the ripping software uh, I use. You can buy it at dbpoweramp.com. The app we were talking about last week is called Perfect Tunes, which is also by Spoon, who is the creator of DB Power Amp. And essentially, it is a uh, an application uh, written by a professional who maintains it that deals with things like finding album art, uh, editing metadata on ID tags, and... Uh, uh, Accurate Rip is the tool that checks lossless tracks for ripping errors. It compares your rips against other people's rips. And, uh, you know, if it's a positive match, that means your rip is error-free. That's what I need to do. <laughs> it's a pretty slick tool. Because I know I have a few tracks that are not encoded properly. There's something wrong in terms of the uh, when it does a playback, you can hear the defects within the... the not the recording, but the my ripping and encoding of it. So having a tool that I can go through several thousand tracks and in an automated way and check them for errors, I am looking forward to uh, running that software this weekend. <laughs> That'll be a, a project. Yeah, and I just point out, they, they bundle uh, Perfect Tunes or Spoon bundles Perfect Tunes and DB Power App together. If you want to buy Perfect Tunes separately, it's 54 bucks for a family pack, which you can install on five PCs, or it's 36 bucks for a single PC. I haven't run it in a while. Uh, I'm also in the process of re-ripping everything, so in theory, it should all be taken care of, but I'm sure I'll be running it in the none-too-distant future. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, uh, TB Power Amp is what I was also using in the in the uh, 
the rip monster when I had like seven CDs ripping simultaneously. Oh, also yeah. in the process of updating the rip monster to Blu-rays, but that's a terrible conversation for another day. Oh, I have some good information for you about that very subject. If you uh, <laughs> if you need the appropriate hardware and or software, it is incredibly I, uh... not difficult to do. <laughs> No, no. It's just the data sizes with with a like an HDR Blu-ray can be like eighty gigs. <laughs> you should gets, see the gets a little Synology crazy. NAS box uh, that's just out of frame here. Oh, speaking of which, that's going to be my next project is finally upgrading oh. my NAS box to something a little more modern for my audio and video collections. <laughs> Looking forward to that, and I'm eyeballing Synology products for that. They do some good work. Yeah. They do some good work. We got an email from Bai uh, to ask at avxl.com. He says, I've been following y'all and appreciate all the information you provide. Thank you. The first question is a bit more involved than the others. He had a whole bunch of questions, and we kind of split a bunch of those off. This was interesting. He's got a Yamaha uh, AVR, an HTR 4065, and a set of Pro Cinema 800 speakers, and those are made by uh, Definitive Technology. They're smaller satellite speakers with a, su a bundled subwoofer. And he says, unless I really crank the volume, the sub often doesn't bother turning on. It has an auto-sleep mode. I don't remember if it's configurable, so everything will just go through the bookshelf speakers. Then an explosion or some other noise will happen, and I'll hear the sub click on, and it will fill out the sound. If I turn up the volume much higher, uh, the sub seems to stay on the whole time, and the sound fills out fine. Any ideas for things to look at? As far as I know, the crossover frequencies, et cetera, are set correctly. So in theory, is the the way the subwoofer in that is supposed to work is as soon as you power up the AVR and it starts sending out signal to the speakers, the subwoofer should turn on and stay on. Um, and I don't think there's any way to configure the uh, auto sleep mode on that subwoofer. I know you, you're pretty sure the crossover frequencies and, and everything are set correctly, but it never fails to amaze me how often I can set things correctly and something's not working. So I do sort of a factory reset and then manually go through and, and reset all of my settings again, which is emotionally traumatizing and irritating, but often solves problems that I can't solve any other way. Your subwoofer should not be turning off, period. I will also point out that Three things. One, your subwoofer doesn't cover a whole lot of range. And one of the things that always amazes me, because I will run, say, music or a, a particular, like especially an action film, home theater soundtrack with speakers. And I'll be like, this sounds really good. Like these speakers have some excellent bass. And then I'll attach a subwoofer. And then I'll be like, oh, I never want to listen to anything without a subwoofer again. That's the base, you know, because I'm somebody who, um, well, I have been through car crashes, but, I, you know, I literally spent several years of my life getting as close as I could to, say, Mike Watts, Galleon Kruger bass stack uh, at, you know, I saw them play like 13 times in two or three years before they broke up. And, you know, I have this intimate relationship to what that sounds, that album sounds like uh, in real life. Uh, or at least the instrument that generated that that was recorded for that album and the impact of the bass from the guitar and the bass drum because bass drums they have impact the drummer slams on the bass and you feel it right you know while i hear the bass drum i don't feel it with a lot of speakers unless there's a subwoofer i mention that because when you then sort of turn off the speakers and just play the track through the subwoofer, I'm always amazed at how little work the subwoofer generally has. 
you know, because there's not a whole lot down there below 80, you know, 120 hertz or 80 hertz. There's really not a lot going on below 80 hertz. So if your subwoofer is positioned in a spot in the room where there's a particularly difficult kind of standing wave or room mode, it will emphasize certain notes and you're like, ah, and it will make other notes not seem there. And the subwoofer will sound like it's kind of like punching in it. It'll, it'll seem like it's, it's not working and then suddenly it's working too much. You could also have, if it's literally turning off, then something's probably wrong in the control board on the subwoofer. But again, I would go through and reconfigure the amplifier and make sure you have the, you know, the, the speaker set to small and the subwoofer at the appropriate crossover and that all of the switches on the subwoofer are set properly. If it doesn't work, there's so many good subwoofers right now that are probably going to kick the ass on the subwoofer that came bundled with those Pro Cinema speakers, and it's a really serious upgrade. Nothing gets definitive, but generally speaking, if you're looking at shoe or uh, RSL or SVS or Monoprice's monolith line, there's some kind of serious subwoofers out there that don't cost a huge amount of money. And they're so much better than a lot of the subwoofers that are bundled with boxed uh, speaker sets, just as a thought. I'm tempted to take a look at the manual on that too, real quick, just to see if there's maybe some setting. If there's something configurable, yeah. it seems odd that a sub would be going to sleep while the, the rest of the system's active. That's just, right. uh, and like you said, too, I think maybe if, if that is just simply the case, which seems odd, then yeah, replace it. There are so many great options out there. It can be really frustrating configuring AVRs these days because there's just so much going on. It seems like a really nice AVR, but it can be incredibly frustrating. <laughs> I guess the trick, yeah. too, is also figuring out if it's something within the AVR that could be set, which I kind of right. doubt. I don't think the AVR should be just turning off the well, sub when the unit's running. It shouldn't, right? But it's got dynamic range control, which means it mm. may have a midnight setting. Does the midnight setting turn off the subwoofer, or is there some sort of gating on that? Double check your configuration. Well, we'll go through the manual again. It's a thick manual. <laughs> double check all your settings. Double check the subwoofer. Uh, and also, you know, I didn't see anything, but but definitely check any forums that mention it to see if this is maybe an issue that other people are having with the subwoofer. Because in theory, as soon as signal is coming out of the AVR, which should happen as soon as you fire it up, the subwoofer should be on and it should stay on. True. Yeah. True that. Bai also says, I'm contemplating picking up a set of the ELAC 2.0 speakers that Patrick's always recommending to replace my Pro Cinema. Do you think I'll have any different experience with them or that it will fix my sub-issue? I don't think it'll change your sub-issue at all, unless changing the crossover for the ELAC setting, which I would probably still put at 80, 80 hertz, um, unless that's different, which you can also test before you buy them, you know, just by switching the, the speaker size or the speaker crossover setting inside your AVR. The ELACs are significantly bigger than the satellites that come with the Pro Cinema 800 set. And uh, I am at a particular phase in my life where I have a lot of love for small speakers, but I have a lot more love for bigger speakers that move more air. Will you notice a difference? Probably. I had some really nice Kef uh, T-Series wall mountable super thin they, you know they're 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 essentially like less than an inch thick they mounted directly to the wall and those sounded really good and i really enjoyed them and i used them for a really long time and then i threw in the elax the elac you know it's a newer speaker it's a different speaker design but mostly it had a much bigger woofer 
And that allowed it to move a lot more air. And moving air is kind of how you hear things. So, you know, and right now I'm experimenting with great big tower speakers uh, in my home theater, which is a radically different experience. Um, because, you know, these the, the golden ears I'm using right now have uh, subwoofers built into them. Ooh. which is an interesting experience. And they move a whole lot of air. I like that feeling of they generate a lot of sound. I don't know, you know, it's kind of silly to say it that way, but the biggest thing I noticed between going for a, from a smaller satellite to a bigger a uh, bigger speaker is that the midwoofer or subwoofer or the midwoofer and woofer or the woofer or the combined midwoofer, woofer, whatever you want to call the, the various, you know, is it a two-channel speaker? Is it a three-channel speaker? If it's a bigger transducer and it moves more air, I think you will definitely notice a difference. Uh, whether you will like the difference or you like the tuning on the speaker or whether the speaker sounds good in your room uh, is a totally different conversation. So uh, it's certainly worth considering. I think I'd stick with at least get the subwoofer issue straightened out first before you yeah. start swapping other speakers out. Because I don't think simply yeah. changing a speaker is going to affect what the subwoofer is currently doing. Unless yeah, you like you said, a sub. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you borrow a sub from a neighbor. Unless, like you said, too, if it gets to that point where you do the full master reset on everything and then suddenly it starts working somehow, <laughs> that might be a cause for doing that as well. That never happens to us. Mm -mm. Oh, goodness. I want to give a shout out to Laura, who answered my uh, my Star Trek call last week. Uh, she posted up on Patreon.com slash Excel. Quote, the new Star Trek is great. The first season is all the Klingon war. Starting with the second season, we see more of the Discovery and Starfleet. It's like watching a one-hour movie. You can see how they spent the money you give them. It looks gorgeous. I've been a major Star Trek fan for most of my life. Tonight, I saw the first episode. I smiled for the whole night, and I walked around saying, it didn't suck. I was delighted. Excellent. They also have the woman who is in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, who's amazing. She's fabulous both as a martial artist as an actress. Her character is great. If this is the only thing you want to watch, I would subscribe to Paramount Plus, watch the three seasons so far, and Below Decks, and then unsubscribe. I am a full-time subscriber, and the only thing I watch is Star Trek. I want them to have the money to make these beautiful episodes. If you see the episode, see Will Wheaton's post-show on YouTube. He has really good guests and very good interviews and uh oh, cool thank you laura and drat now i want to check it out <laughs> uh, thanks for the heads up on the post show with will I, I i recently as i've been driving across the country i recently uh had the audiobook for will wheaton reading ready player two and then turned around and and listened to his read of ready player one something very soothing about having will wheaton read to you while you drive across utah and wyoming and nebraska i just want to say that <laughs> excellent <laughs> i understand that i've been waiting for ear tips to make the airpods pro fit in my ears so that i can stand up and move around and not just sit in a chair with them uh, i will talk about the uh comply tips next week cool man acoustically fixing the backlighting <laughs> from my i shifted for uh, i shifted from a, a traditional kind of you know sprayed on screen for my projector to an acoustically transparent projection screen which was not a problem in my old house but uh in my current hanging situation uh creates a lot of unbelievable amounts of light coming out of a the back of the screen and b being bounced off the wall so we'll talk about walls and colors and reflected light and home theater experiences next week i think duvetine is in my future duvetine <laughs>
What? Are you saying there's a potential issue with hanging a perforated screen in front of a white wall? <laughs> well, this one isn't perforated. It's oh. woven. Oh, okay. It's kind of... Okay, so I'll give you a hint. My home theater installation is not perfected at this point. It's a little... If you're military, the phrase whiskey tango might mean something to you. But there's a power cable that kind of hangs down behind the screen. I mentioned that because I thought there was a hair on the lens of my projector. And I finally realized so much light is coming through the projection screen and bouncing off the white cinder block wall behind it. It was bouncing off the wall and then ref- the I was seeing the shadow of the power cable that's four inches behind the screen. Basically, the light is bouncing off the wall and creating a shadow on the back of the screen from the light that's bouncing off the wall, if if that kind of makes sense. In any case... That's something I wouldn't have considered, actually. For a woven screen design, I would have expected it to maybe, maybe... Well, I would expect it to be more of a diffusion system for any kind of light that would make it all the way through, but again, yeah. (laughs) Clearly, that's not the case, and it's a good reminder. I feel like that a lot of lights going straight through that screen. If I can find my, if I can find my lux meter, I will measure in front of the screen and behind the screen, which should be highly amusing. It's so funny uh, for custom setups. We're usually worried about you know lights on the front of the screen somehow yeah. interacting with the screen itself, but then you're talking about the projector pushing light through the screen and bouncing off the back wall. It's just one of those things that, you know, it takes a little fine tuning. It was peculiar, to say the least. You've clearly got it troubleshooted. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I mounted it. You know, it was originally, it was a few inches off the wall that I moved it out, you know, to like 14 inches off the wall. So it would clear in front of some bookshelves. And now I'm realizing that that may not be enough. And, or I, I you know, the, the, you know, white walls can be problematic for home theaters. It's also one of the reasons why bias lighting can make such a huge difference if you have a particularly, especially if you have a particularly bright screen. If you want to hear us talk about bias lighting, email askanavxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton, at Robert Heron, or at avxl.com. And uh, if you do tweet at us about a question for the podcast, hashtag AV Excel. Just a thought. Thank you, each and every one of you, for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you especially to everyone who supports us on patreon.com slash AVXL. And we got to bounce. Because I have children to teach math to. And Robert's about to be rained on. It is coming down, <laughs> baby. Right now. All day. <laughs> Blessed oh, rain. We need it. I cannot complain. Nothing wrong with being able to flush the toilet in August because there's enough rain in the reservoirs. May they fill up. True that. All right, everybody. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.